21 years ago, in the fall of 2002, Nisha and I packed up our stuff and moved from Northern Virginia to Santa Rosa, California. And we were hired to come work with the teens of this church, uh, which at the time, the church was somewhere between like 225, 250 every Sunday. And the five years that Nisha and I were here were some of my favorite years of ministry. Uh, Nisha and I formed relationships with the teens that were in that group that were deep and meaningful, so much so that many of them are our good friends as adults, although now they have children, and I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) But something that made that time uh, exceptional for me was that the dynamic that was created between the kids and I was something that was very special. And I, I, I don't know how to explain it to you if you weren't around or weren't a part of it or um, any of those things, but uh, I, it, it taught me how important chemistry is in the relationship between a pastor and their church. Um, and I am not exaggerating when I say the five years of ministry with the teenagers that I had here was easy. It was one of the easiest things I've ever done in ministry. And that does not mean that there weren't challenges. There were a lot of challenges. There were a lot of things that happened during those years that I still kind of wrestle with and deal with today. But my ministry with those kids always uh, kept me always kept me engaged, and and even though there were times where I felt like I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, like if, if, can can I handle all of these other things, my relationship with those kids kept me centered and kept me grounded in what God wanted me to do. And it was a really odd combination because they wanted to learn, and I wanted to teach, so, I mean, that worked out pretty well. Uh, They brought friends with them to many of our events. We never did a bring a friend day because they all just brought friends anyway. Uh, We had kids coming to our youth group who had never been to church before in their lives, whose parents didn't go to church. And they were here with us for every single thing. And, And forgive my hyperbole here, but everything we did as a youth ministry worked on some level. Even the things that didn't go as I had planned turned into something fun and good in those moments that were unexpected. We were taking more people than were here this morning, more teenagers almost, than were here this morning on ski trips every year. Uh, We were taking 35-plus kids to Mexico uh, to do different things every year, and it was an amazing, incredible time. And I think, looking back on it, that I probably experienced more joy in ministry during that time than I ever would have believed possible. So I want to tell you a secret, which is probably not much of a secret. I had never experienced anything like that before, and I haven't since. Now, before you get uppity on me, I know that's a weird thing to tell you the people that I work with now. 
So don't take it personally. Um, but many of you were actually involved in the things that we did during that time. And you know kind of what it was like. What made that time so special? Besides the things I have mentioned, and I can mention many more, there were a few basic reasons that for me as a pastor, that time felt so significant in my life. Number one, I was experiencing a great deal of, and this is an important gesture, success. I was. I was... Uh, the, the ideas that I had were working, the group was growing, the kids were responding, the parents tolerated me for the most part. It was everything that you would hope a youth ministry could be. And, and the, the depth of my relationship again with them was such that when I did my last year of faith development camp at Daybreak, one of the youth uh, pastors who was one of my great friends stood up and he said, and he had been in youth ministry for a long time, he said, I have never seen a youth minister have the kind of relationship you have with your kids. It was distinct. <clears throat> Therefore, because of all of those things, that time is idealized in my mind. It is the height that will never be duplicated. And looking back, I clearly see everything that was good, and the things that were bad are kind of blurry. And there have been times in my ministry, in the ups and downs, that I have wondered if I will ever experience something like that again. The past has a weird way of coloring the way we see our present and our future. Our past can become the filter that we run everything to. Are we better or are we worse than we were before? And if our past was not so great, it may motivate us to make sure that we never get back to that place again, that we will be better no matter what is going on. But on the other hand, if our past was, and again, this is an important gesture, better, then our present, we may spend a great deal of time trying to recapture what we once had. And the question that sits unanswered, because we don't know how to answer it, in the back of our minds it sits there, the question of what does better mean? What does better look like? Does it mean we have more people? Does it mean that the depth of our relationships are the same no matter how many people we have? What are we doing when we look at ourselves to judge our success? What makes us successful? It's a challenging question, isn't it? And here's the thing to build you up a little bit. I would not take more people in exchange for what this community currently is. And I know that's, don't, don't misunderstand me. I would love for more people to know you because I know that by them knowing you, they will come to know Jesus. 
but I made this joke yesterday, and I think it still applies today at our men's breakfast when I said this. You know, new people may really mess it up. And is that really what we want, is for people to come in and, and mess up our vibe here? But besides all of that, even, the top layer, which we cannot deny, is that we are all here because uh, we are followers of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we are here because we believe that God guides us and makes us who we are, and so we live a life of faith. We live in the great in-between of knowing who we were and hoping for what is possible. And it's a little bit frustrating when we, as people of faith, sit here and understand and say to one another and, and try to put onto every situation that our God is a limitless God. That there is nothing that is beyond his reach. There is nothing he cannot do. And now you know, because I've just said that, the question that creeps in. If that's true, then why aren't we, you ready for the quotes again? More than we are now. Well, I think in order to answer that question, <clears throat> we have to ask ourselves, well, who are we now? We do not look like we once did. Some of you have aged horribly during that time. <laughs> we are, we are a small and aging church. And knowing that this is true, about us and wondering what to do about it can be a frustrating and discouraging experience. And it is especially fraught for someone like me whose job it is to lead us into whatever may be next. Because here's another secret. I don't have all the answers I know this is going to shock you. I don't have all the answers that will make us whatever I think it is we should be or whatever you think it is we should be. I don't know. There is something I want you to know about that, though, this morning is that we are not alone. It might seem like it sometimes, but we are not the only small aging church on this block. We aren't. And there, has, there is currently a lot of talk about the state of the church in America. And there is an organization named Fresh Expressions, which exists to help churches find new ways to be effective in their communities. Uh, I, I don't know a whole lot about them other than their research and things that they have looked like, but I can tell you that there is always a group to help us come up with new things to do and fresh expressions within our community. 
They recently had their director, Dr. Christopher Backert, on one of their podcasts, and these are some of the things he shared that I want to share with you this morning. Number one, there were some trends that were already happening in American churches before COVID. COVID sped all that up and made those things happen uh, before really anyone was ready for them, which means the pandemic not only changed the world, it changed the church, and it changed people's relationship with the church. How did it change the church? Well, most churches are smaller. Everything about them is smaller, except for the buildings. The buildings are the same size, which, you know, we laugh about that, but two churches that are extremely significant in my life both sold their buildings this last year to use those resources to sustain themselves in other ways. And one church absolutely, they, they did it for very different reasons. One did it because their campus was enormous. And there were 150 of them in there. And the auditorium is about four times the size of this room. It's a little discouraging, isn't it? To have 150 people in a football stadium. <laughs> and the other one faced, you know, a reality that several churches are facing, which is if we want to continue, we have to do something different, maybe even something drastic. Most things about church are smaller. And this is true for churches of every denomination across the country. And this was the trend pre-COVID, and COVID made it happen. Uh, and there are outliers. Uh, there is an estimated 2 to 5% of churches in America that somehow benefited from COVID. But they're dead to me, and I don't want to know how it worked for them. Now, because everything is smaller, um, most churches are rebuilding in some fashion. Um, we are not the only church trying to figure out what to do and what our next step should be. But this is something that I found fascinating, that, that maybe, you know, maybe all this stuff is too weird and nerdy for you, which, you know, you should get on the bus because weird and nerdy is sometimes pretty good. Um, but here's what has happened. Uh, nominal Christianity in any significant form has died in the last three to four years. Um, well, yeah, we must think differently. Can we go to the next slide? <clears throat> and who? the next one. There we go. Uh, and bring up the next one, too. Thank you. Uh, nominal means the group of people that attended but weren't really engaged, but were here, you know, 60 to 75% of the time. You know who I'm talking about, right? And I don't know if you have noticed this, but post-COVID, those people are not really around. And that's not just true here. What, we, what, what people are finding is that the people who pre-COVID we're going to church because they felt like they should. 
uh, or because it was a part of their past, have chosen not to do church anymore because they don't want to. And whatever tenuous thread church held on them before COVID, that thread has snapped. So <clears throat> this is largely responsible for the gap that we see between um, pre-COVID and post-COVID. And to put it simply, just in the most basic of terms, if people aren't committed, then they aren't here. Um, and we might not have realized it before, but if those of you who were here 20 years ago and can remember what it was like for us to have 250 people, um, a lot of them fell into this nominal category. I mean, a lot of people were committed. A lot of people were this. But there were a lot of people who came to church that never, you know, got super involved in other things besides worship. And that's normal. That's how many churches function and operate. But that just isn't the case anymore. And so in order to help you kind of wrap your minds around this a little bit more, uh, I want to talk specifically about some statistics. Um, if I were to ask you what the average attendance of a church in the United States is, and Wayne and Randy, you cannot answer this question, if I were to ask you what the average attendance of a church in the United States is, what would you say? How many people? A hundred? Seventy-five? Eighty-five? Do I hear ninety? <laughs> the average church right now, based on a survey that was actually done late in uh, 2020, is 65 people. That is the average attendance of churches within the United States. Um, and about a third of those attendees are age 65 or older. So here's some stats for us to consider that I want you to try to wrap your mind around this morning because this is important. Believe it or not, this is important. First, we have a group of small churches who are zero to 99 people in attendees. There are 177,000 of those churches in the United States, totaling 9 million worshipers total. And that's 59% of the churches in the United States. That's a significant number that fall into this category. Uh, next is medium small churches. You know, when we can't, you know, have a known category, we just start like blending words together. So medium small, which I had never heard that term before, uh, is 100 to 499 attendees. There are 105,000 um, medium small churches, 25 million worshipers total, 35% of all churches by location. So what do you notice? Number one, we're already about, you know, 72,000 churches below within this category, but the number is bigger, right? But it's still only 35% of all churches uh, within the United States. Number three is, in fact, medium. There we go. 500 to 99, which to me does not seem like a medium church, but that's a conversation for another day. This is 4% of churches, of all churches. There are 12,000 of them 
Where did we start? 177,000. What was next? 105,000. What do we have here? 12,000. 4% of all churches, and it reaches 9 million worshipers total. Large churches are 1,000 to almost 2,000 members. 2% of all churches by location. 6,000 churches altogether. 8 million worshipers in total. There are two more categories. Who can guess what they're called? Mega and super mega. It's mega with the cape and everything, you know? Uh, so mega churches are 2,000 to 10,000. Um, they are 0.5% of churches in America. There are almost 1,200 of them, and they have 4 million worshipers total which we then go to the super mega churches, which is 0.01%. There are 50 of them, and amongst those 50 churches, there are 700,000 worshipers total. What do we learn from these numbers? It reinforces for us that most churches in America are not this. In fact, most of them are not even large. A higher percentage are medium. A higher percentage still are medium-small. And the largest number is small. That is the nature of things. So churches in general are small. They have limited staff and limited resources. And despite their, limited, their limitation, these small and medium-sized churches serve far more people. Those first two categories serve far more people than the other churches combined. So, here's why this is important. It is easy to look at this church and say, but look at so-and-so. And our perception of those churches is they're so big and they're doing so many things. But what I want you to know is that is not a fair comparison, number one. And number two, there is nothing but defeat to be found in that comparison. And what would we rather have Another 50 churches that are super mega that serve another 700,000 people? Is that what success looks like? It really doesn't. Because if there's one thing we should get out of all of this is that the churches that are the backbone of this country are all small and they're all working in their neighborhoods and their towns to make a difference. That is the scope. And churches are doing that too. But that is the scope. <clears throat> Why do I share this with you? To encourage you. <laughs> to make you feel good about the state of things in the world. 
Now, it's important for us to understand what is happening in churches across the country because it gives us a context with which we can understand ourselves. And yes, we were smaller than we once were. We are not numerically who we think we could be or who we want to be, and that can be discouraging. And the path forward, based on however we define more or better or success, is uncertain. Because who are we supposed to be and how do we get there? And I wonder at those moments when we are asking those questions in comparison to those bigger churches, where God is in that question. I want you to be reminded of something that is really important, that I think gives us the perspective we need when we begin to look forward, and that is that the world has changed. The church has changed. God has not. God has not. Our God is just as capable as he has always been. He is the same God now as he was when there were more of us here. He is the same God who overcomes obstacles and makes a way for his people, and he is still capable of doing more than we ask or imagine. None of that has stopped being true because this room is not as full as it once was. And shame on us if we forget that. The Bible is full of stories where the people of God did not know how to move forward and at some point had to relinquish control of their future so that God could move them forward. And what you then see following a lot of that is God's people wrestling to take control back. To be uh, determining their own future. Abraham, Moses, David, all the great people in the Bible story. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets, from the highest king to the lowest servant, Their story in the Bible is not about what they did and how great they were. The story is about how good God is and how great he always is. And when the narrative changes from how great God is to how great the person, the institution, the office may be, it always goes off track every single time without fail if you want your church to die take control decide which way to go regardless of how the holy spirit may be nudging you and the thing is that those stories that we see and read about they are our story as well whatever we have been whatever we are whatever we become the truth of who we are is that god was behind us god is with us and god goes before us and i hate to say something so painfully obvious But I'm going to say it. There is no church without God and there is no success without Jesus. 
All of this leads me to this crucial question that I want us to consider here today. The question is not, are we too small to do what we want to do? Or, how do we become what we once were? Those are not the questions we should be asking or even considering. Here's the question. Do we think that God is done with us? Acknowledging these questions is important to us for one main reason. The first questions, are we too small? How do we get bigger? That question puts the focus of how we look, how we interact with the world, what we plan, it puts that focus on us. We're going to feel better when there's more people here. But the second question takes us out of the center of the discussion and puts God where he should be. However we may feel about ourselves, do we think that God is done with us? As if there is nothing more he can accomplish because we can't feed a thousand people in one sitting or be the biggest church in town. And yes, things look different. And you all know this, that the things that worked for us before are not going to work now. But what if, and I know this is a crazy thought, it is. What if God doesn't want us to be who we were? What if God has a different dream for this group of people than that? And what if we are exactly who we need to be in order to become what God wants us to be? It is not about if he can do it. It's about whether we believe he will do it. And if then we are willing to go where he takes us. And what does that look like? I don't know. But within this space, those three words, I don't know, become powerful. Because by saying I don't know, I'm not saying everything's going to be haphazard and we're just going to guess or throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks. I mean, we might do that. But those three words, I don't know, declare something to all of us in this room. We may not have to know how God is going to do something. And while God needs us to be on board, he doesn't need my approval for what he wants to do. And he doesn't need yours either. He needs you to trust that he is the God that holds your future. He is the God that holds our future. And if we are going to do anything to change 
the community and the world that we live in, then he must be behind us, he must be with us, and he must go before. Which takes us, as we close here today, to one of those deceptive passages in the Bible. You don't know that you've been tricked all this time, but you have. And I'm just glad I can show you the error of your ways. This comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. These are uh, Paul's closing thoughts to this church. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This passage is about perspective. But it may not be about perspective in the way that you think because the whole time that I have known this passage from the time, you know, I was a kid growing up in church, there was one part of this passage that I knew better than any other part. It's verse 20. Now to him who is able to do... There was even a song that we would listen to about this verse from acapella. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And I'm afraid that the fault that I carried with me about this verse is that by paying attention to verse 20, I missed all the rest of it. And I could acknowledge that the rest of it is pretty good. But I like verse 20 because God is able to do immeasurably more. Meaning I can't even begin to dream of the things that God is capable of doing. And I read that verse and I think, and he's going to do it through me. But Paul's prayer was not that the church in Ephesus would be great. Where does he say they will be great? Where does he say they will change the world? Where does he say that people will talk about them throughout history because of how great they are? I can't find it there and the reason why i can't find it is because he doesn't say that instead his prayer for that community as he closes out his thoughts to them is the most simple basic of things 
What did he want? He wanted them to be filled with the love of God. To begin to comprehend how great that love is. Because Paul knows that if they can begin to understand the immeasurable nature of God's love, then they will be ready to be whatever God wants them to be. For as Paul wrote in another book, we are compelled by the love of God. Because we believe that one died for who? For all. He prayed that they might show that love of God to one another and that the love of God would give them the power they need to take Christ to the world. I've told you this before, and Linda has told you this before. So if you don't listen to me, listen to her. This church excels at loving one another and loving others. You are gifted in that. And sometimes I have these meetings with other pastors um, from around the Bay Area, and we always start in the same way, and they always say, like, how are things going, and, you know, what fires are you putting out at church? And you know what I say? They hate me every time. Because I tell them, I don't have to waste my time putting out fires. I don't have to spend time trying to mend relationships that broke over something I might consider trivial. I don't have to mend fences nonstop. And do you know why that is? The nominal Christians may not be going to church anymore, but you're here because you want to be here. You're here because you love the people in this room. And you're here because you believe that the love of God is, in fact, overwhelming. And therefore, I don't know what we are positioned to do for God, but if the best we do is love one another and love others, then we're way closer than we think we are. Amen? We are way closer than we may think we are. This church is not done loving the world on behalf of God. This church is not done telling others about the radical love of Jesus. This church is not done with believing that our God is greater than anything that might stand before us. And we are not done making a difference in this community and God is not done with us. He's not done with us. 
So don't buy into that lie. May we move forward into the horizon of our future, knowing that it is our God who created the horizon itself. And it is him who goes before us.